0: Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie.
1: This week, why astronomers blew the top off a Chilean mountain, why tanning beds may have an addictive quality, and why Tesla have given away their electric car patents for
0: free. Plus, England may have exited the World Cup, but we're exploring the science behind one of the world's biggest sporting events this week, including how chanting affects fans evidence for discrimination by referees on the pitch, and evidence that domestic violence is linked to footy results.
2: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
0: This week, 3,000 metres up a Chilean mountain, scientists pressed the button to blow up half a million tonnes of rock. The mountain is called Chero Amazonas, and the reason it was being blown up was to create the site for what will become the world's most powerful optical telescope. With typical scientific understatement, it's known as the European Extremely Large Telescope, or EELT. Jerry Gilmore from the Institute of Astronomy is one of the EELT initiative, and he's with us. Hello, Jerry. Good evening. So, first of all, what is this telescope?
3: Uh, It's designed to be the biggest optical and near-infrared telescope yet built. It will be maybe twice as big as its nearest competitor, four times bigger than the biggest that we have today, and will allow us to go maybe 100 times deeper and fainter into the universe. When we say optical
0: telescope... What does that mean?
3: It means this thing is especially designed to work on the same light that we see by eye, but also on the heat that we feel on our skin. So it doesn't study radio waves, doesn't study the frequency that this program's going out on, and it doesn't study the far infrared because that's invisible from the ground. You have to go into space to do that. But the sort of warm and visible light is where all the normal
0: stars shine, actually. That's why, why we look that way. Now, when we say big and extremely large, this imaginative name for this telescope, how big actually is it? They're pretty dull names,
3: aren't they? Its predecessor is called the Very Large Telescope, so we're going to run into humongous soon, I think. <laughs> it is big. The mirror is just under 40 metres, which is about 40% of the size of a football field. And that's the glass, the mirror. The, the telescope structure itself is maybe twice that size, a huge big thing. And
0: when we say 40 metres is the mirror, is that one single piece of glass or is it the mirror equivalent of an insect eye, lots of little mirrors that all work together?
3: It's exactly the second, yes. It's, uh, you can't make one big mirror, or even if you could, it would be kind of difficult to carry it up the side of a mountain. Uh, so it's actually made of over a thousand small mirrors, each of which is about a metre in size, actually. They're little hexagons that all fit together, just like the panels on a football. There's about a thousand of these things, each individually controlled, so that they're acting as if they're a single large mirror.
0: And this means that you can, I presume, focus or tweak the performance of the telescope very, very accurately because you can move each of these individual elements and therefore overcome aberrations in the moving a little bit or gravity or the atmosphere.
3: Yeah, that's the reason that these things are multi-mirror. Any structure that big sags under its own weight. It gets blown around by the wind, shakes. There's little earthquakes shaking things all the time anywhere on Earth. And so having a large number of mirrors, each of which is fine-tuned about a 1,000 times a second, allows us to correct for this uh, real-time disturbance function and produce a telescope that works, although it's bigger than anything else, it will work very much higher precision than anything we've done before as well. So we get really, really sharp image quality. Why the top of a mountain in Chile? <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. We had a, a little bang so that we could do better at studying the Big Bang. The... Uh The reason we go to high mountains is basically to get away from the water and dust in the air. Uh, The reason that stars twinkle and everything blurs out at night is because of water in the air. So you have to go high and dry. And the highest, driest place on Earth is the northern Andes in Chile. Uh, So there are a lot of telescopes up there. And it's the best site on Earth on which to actually... To astronomy. And the bang was to level off the top of the mountain just to make the site good? Uh, yes, uh, mountaintops in general don't come flat and so telescopes need to be on a flat base and hard rock so you've got to get rid of all the fractured rubbish
0: uh, and clean it off so that you've got a good solid foundation. You've said that this will return stunningly good quality images which are far more powerful than much that we've ever been able to see before but what exactly will you be able to do with this telescope what are the the goals of this mission
3: uh, okay yeah well size matters in telescopes for two reasons the first is a bigger collection gives you more light so you can see fainter objects and so you can get much more detailed studies on the oldest things in the universe the first things that, that formed only a few hundred million years after the big bang And we can detect these things with things like the Hubble Space Telescope, but no more than that. And this telescope's designed to allow us to study them in detail. But the other thing you can do with the big telescopes is have a lot more magnification if you've got good image quality so that you can then look at things that are very close to other things. And the particular challenge here is to look for planets around other stars, measure their colours and see if we can find an Earth-like planet at the right distance from its parent star and see if it goes white in winter and green in summer.
0: In other words, we'll be able to see bodies, these distant planets, which are much smaller than those we can see at the moment, because we, we can see loads of planets around other stars, these exoplanets, but they're all big ones, aren't they?
3: Yeah, they're big ones, and also they're mostly seen only indirectly. Uh, you can We see them by actually measuring all of the light plus the star plus planet, and then subtracting off what we see when the planet goes around the back. And so you're actually measuring a, a difference between two very large numbers, which is quite hard to do accurately. With enough magnification and enough light collection, you'll actually see the planet as
0: a planet. So have a real image of a real independent planet. I'd like to finish by asking you about the price tag and the delivery date for this. So when will this telescope go live and how much is it costing?
3: Uh, the cost would be about one and a quarter billion euros in today's money. Uh, the project started getting on for 15 years ago now. It should be finished in, in principle in another 10 years from now. That depends on cash flow and technical issues.
0: And who is paying for this?
3: Uh, it's funded by Europe, the European Southern Observatory. That's a collection of 20-odd countries western all, all the obvious western european countries but with a couple of other significant partners including chile of course where the the host country uh, and brazil which is joining european southern observatory as part of a much bigger program to combine brazilian science with european science and so their joining fee provides the crucial extra money. So we're all hoping they, they win this World Cup and feel happy and turn up with a cheque pretty soon. Have they not paid yet? Uh, it takes a long time to get things through the Brazilian parliament. Uh, yeah, it was uh, the, the deal was signed by President Lula five years ago, but getting things through complex political structures takes time. How much do Brazil owe you? It's only a third of a billion. I mean, it's small change compared <laughs> to a, a football game. Do you think
0: they've invested <laughs> it in the World Cup rather than in your telescope then? Is that where they late? They might have borrowed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they've staked it all on their games. Well, good luck to them. I'll, maybe they'll be be able to invest for... a bigger share in the telescope in future. I'll be out there cheering. <laughs> Jerry Gilmore from the Institute of Astronomy. Thanks very much.
1: Now, perhaps you've been out in the gorgeous sunshine we've been lucky enough to have recently, topping up your tan. Or if you're really keen, you might have been to a tanning salon. But a note of caution now comes from America, with new research suggesting that you risk becoming addicted to the ultraviolet rays in sunshine and sunbeds. It could also partly explain the rising rates of skin cancer. A team at Massachusetts General Hospital have been studying mice and they found that when they're exposed to UV radiation, it stimulates or upregulates the way they produce endorphins. These are the so-called feel-good chemicals produced naturally in our bodies, but also similar to the chemicals found in addictive pain-killing drugs, including morphine and heroin. Dr David Fisher explained to me how UV light
4: triggers endorphins and whether you can become addicted to sunshine. The initial clue was simply understanding the molecules that are known to participate in the tanning response. That guided us to test whether endorphin would be upregulated specifically in the skin. This is based on common understanding of how the responses in the skin are triggered by damage such as ultraviolet radiation. So we first knew that locally in the skin after ultraviolet radiation, endorphin was upregulated, but we suspected that if it would have an effect on behavior, the endorphin would probably need to be elevated in the bloodstream in order to make it to the brain where behavior would be impacted. And so we could test that in these animals. And sure enough, after low-dose UV radiation for several days, we could see that blood levels of endorphin would rise in a manner that directly paralleled the ultraviolet exposure in the animals. We also could ask whether this elevation in endorphin had a behavioral consequence and what we noticed is after ultraviolet radiation, the mice became increasingly numb and were not able to feel slight changes in poking a a hair like filament onto the bottom of their feet or changes in temperature, but that pain sensitivity or that sensory sensitivity was restored if we would give them a drug that blocks opiate signaling.
1: This sounds amazing. It sounds like you shine some UV light on these mice and they basically kind of chill out almost as if they were taking pain relieving drugs.
4: That was exactly what we saw. And and in fact, one of the opportunities by doing these studies in experimental animals is that we could then use a variety of genetic tools to study mice in which the gene for endorphin is specifically missing and it's the only thing that's missing. And in those mice, if we shined ultraviolet radiation, they did not experience a change in sensation and they did not experience any addiction-like behaviors. So that we could really, with a great degree of confidence, conclude from this that endorphin is mediating these behavioral changes following ultraviolet exposure.
1: And when you talk about addiction-like behavior, what does that look like to a mouse?
4: So. The first is the presence of withdrawal symptoms in mice that had received UV radiation, and I would emphasize very low doses of UV radiation. We did not want to test this under conditions where there could be sunburning or inflammation in the skin. So we gave very low doses once a day for several weeks, actually, so that there was a chronic exposure to ultraviolet radiation. And in such mice, if we abruptly gave a drug that blocks opiates, the same drug that you would give a patient who had overdosed on heroin when they made it to the emergency room of a hospital, if we gave that drug to these mice that had only been receiving low-dose ultraviolet radiation, the mice started to have withdrawal symptoms. So they would shake, they would jump, they would have what are considered the animal equivalent of human withdrawal symptoms to an opiate.
1: So they're basically going cold turkey from sunlight.
4: That's exactly what it is.
1: Now, we all know that humans aren't mice, and even though they seem to be behaving in this interesting way, is there any evidence that this kind of thing might be happening in humans as
4: well? There are data from people who go to indoor tanning beds, which have suggested by using psychiatric questionnaires, for example, that there are addiction-like behaviors that are very common in people who find themselves frequently using indoor tanning beds. There are withdrawal-like symptoms that have been associated with disrupting this pathway, this opiate pathway, in people who frequently use tanning beds.
1: I'm in London, and it is a beautiful day today. But if I go to the park and I'm seeing people out there, you know, soaking up the sun, what are the implications of knowing that they might actually be addicted to this, given that skin cancer is rising so fast?
4: It is beautiful in Boston, and I wonder exactly the same thing. (laughs) It's a big issue, I think, because what I believe this adds to our knowledge base in terms of how this impacts the public health is that the casual exposure to ultraviolet radiation, I think now reaches a different level because we have evidence that it is feeding in into a pathway that is famously organically addictive if these were drugs that were being given, if it was endorphin that was being injected, or heroin or other opiates, I don't think there would be any question that the nature of regulating indoor tanning beds, for example, should be evaluated in a completely different light than the way it has been up until now. David Fisher
1: talking to me from Boston, Massachusetts.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist
0: with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Now, before we get to the footy, uh, we're talking about what's been making science headlines this week. And capital punishment hasn't been on the cards for the UK since 1964, but many countries, including the USA and China, still execute prisoners every year. This week, the USA has carried out its first lethal injection since the botched execution of convict Clayton Lockett in April. He only died from a cardiac arrest nearly an hour after receiving the injection. The controversial technique has been used as a form of capital punishment in the States since the 70s with over 1,000 inmates being executed this way alone. Here's your quick fire science on the lethal injection with Greg Jackson and Georgia Mills.
5: Using lethal injections was first suggested as a form of capital punishment in New York in the late 19th century. At the time, the idea was rejected as it might have led people to associate hypodermic needles with death. In 1977, a medical examiner named Jay Chapman once more proposed that inmates would be executed with a specific and lethal combination of drugs. Texas became the first state to execute someone this way in 1982. Since then, lethal injections have become the most common way to execute prisoners in America. Inmates
6: are strapped to a gurney, then an intravenous cannula is inserted into each arm. One to apply
5: the sequence of drugs and another as a backup. Most states use three drugs. First, sodium thiopental, a general anaesthetic which causes unconsciousness. Then, pancuronium bromide, which paralyses muscles and stops breathing. And finally, potassium chloride, which stops the heart. The whole process should usually take around seven minutes.
6: Getting the dosage of the various drugs correct is important. There are worries that if not enough sodium thiopental is administered, then the painful effects of the procedure will be felt, but hidden by the induced paralysis.
5: Sodium thiopental is now running very low in the US, as production companies in Europe have refused to supply it to America as it would be used in the lethal injection. Because of this shortage, some states have been
6: using alternative drugs, which haven't always been rigorously tested, while Tennessee have reintroduced
5: the electric chair. In April, Clayton Lockett was administered a previously unused combination of drugs. He was pronounced unconscious after 10 minutes, but continued to move and moan. The execution was then halted, but he died 43 minutes after the initial injection from a heart attack. While the majority
6: of Americans are reportedly in favour of the death penalty, the number of executions scheduled for this year is 33, which is the lowest it has been for 20 years.
0: Greg Jackson and Georgia Mills. You can get hold of all of our Quick Fire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website. That's nakedscientist.com/slash quickfire science.
1: Electronic cigarettes, or e-cigs, are devices that produce nicotine vapour rather than smoke from burning tobacco, and they are all the rage at the moment. Perhaps you or your friends are vaping, as it's known, instead of smoking real ciggies, and you've probably seen glossy adverts for them around the place. Now, this week it's been revealed that there are currently more than 460 different brands available, and a quarter of people in the EU are likely to have vaped, especially younger ex-smokers. But at the moment they're unregulated, and there are a lot of questions such as, who's using them? Do they help people quit smoking? And are they safe? I spoke to smoking behaviour researcher Dr Leon Shahab at University College London.
7: E-cigarettes have been around for the last five to six years and their use has increased dramatically. Of smokers and recent ex-smokers, 20% have ever used them and currently using them on a daily basis around 12%.
1: What do we know about who uses e-cigarettes?
7: It's pretty equally spread across all different age groups. Generally, it's much more likely that smokers rather than ex-smokers are using e-cigarettes.
1: So does it sound like people are using them to quit smoking?
7: There's mixed evidence. So some of the population data that we have seem to suggest that people who start using e-cigarettes tend to also then be more likely to attempt to stop smoking. And in fact, the evidence that was recently published in the UK shows that this may be more effective than the use of NRT that's bought over the counter.
1: So like gums or patches? Like gums,
7: exactly like that. There have been a few randomised controlled trials, so very rigorously controlled trials, that have looked at this issue. And they suggest that e-cigarettes appear to be as effective as conventional nicotine replacement therapy in helping people to stop smoking. But more research is definitely needed.
1: One of the papers that's currently out at the moment says that there are over 460 different brands of e-cigarettes. Some of these are being made by big tobacco companies. And we're starting to see, you know, very glossy adverts that remind me of when I was a child, when we'd see these cigarette posters. I <laughs> what do we know about the kind of the branding and the marketing of the e-cigarettes
7: people have been arguing that um, some of the flavoring that's being used is marketing to attract younger users the evidence also suggests that very few people start using e-cigarettes completely from scratch as it well people have never used cigarettes before so it's only about 0.2 percent in the uk as far as we can tell whilst there may be some evidence that marketing may be geared towards younger users when we look at smoking prevalence in younger users there isn't very much evidence that is actually increasing and there's sort of um posing arguments in the tobacco control field insofar as some people think that the use of e-cigarettes may be encouraging people who would not have used cigarettes at all into starting to smoke. So this is the kind of gateway hypothesis. On the other hand, there are also proponents who argue that regulation of e-cigarettes, say banning them, may be detrimental because it may actually help people to reduce the harms from smoking by switching them over to less dangerous product. So the one thing to remember, of course, is that cigarettes are particularly dangerous because you smoke them for the nicotine they contain, but you die because of the carcinogens. The cancer causing chemicals are caused by the burning of tobacco. Whereas e cigarettes don't burn any tobacco. Nicotine's vaporized, which means that they're much less likely to pose a risk to smokers who use them.
1: And what do we know about any potential harms from e
7: cigarettes? Out there in the literature, there's very little to suggest there are long-term effects. And so new research needs to be carried out um, to investigate the associations between what we can measure in the vapour of e-cigarettes. And so evidence suggests there are some trace elements that are harmful, certain cancer-causing chemicals, but there's no evidence to suggest that this actually then translates into biomarkers that can be measured in humans and users of these products.
1: If someone's listening to this and they're a smoker and they think, oh, smoking's really not doing my health any good, should I try e-cigarettes? What would be your advice?
7: My advice working in the field would be that using e-cigarettes certainly is going to be better for you than continuing to smoke. Consider, first of all, of course, using effective proven treatments such as the Stop Smoking services available. But if that proves ineffective, then trying an e-cigarette is likely to do more good than harm.
0: UCL's Leon Shahab won the latest research into e-cigarettes. He was talking to Kat Arney. Finally, news that could hold a breakthrough for the development of electronic vehicles, which have been slow to catch on because they can't go very far without being charged up. One of the pioneers in this field, the American company Tesla, has announced that it won't prevent other companies from using its exclusive patents, and that means that others will be able to use the same technology, and if they develop it, it could mean many more electric cars getting onto the road. Science Science journalist Mark Peplow.
2: Well, last week, we got some news that could really help to kickstart the market for electric cars. One of the world's leading electric vehicle makers, Tesla, which is based in California, has opened up its patent portfolio so that any manufacturer can use its technology without fear of courtroom battles. Now, given that companies routinely fight tooth and nail to protect their patents, this might sound quite weird, But it could make really good business sense for Tesla because it could accelerate the uptake of electric vehicles.
0: Well, I was going to say, why have they done this? Because this does seem a rather ridiculous strategy if you spend a lot of money putting these patents in place in the first place to then just dismantle them seems very counterintuitive.
2: It's a strategy that you don't often see. But the reason is Tesla needs to grow the market for electric cars. And at the moment, it doesn't have a huge amount of competition with other electric vehicle makers. Tesla has been at the forefront of developing technology to overcome a couple of the key barriers to people using electric cars. Drivers are worried about their limited range and the time that it takes to recharge electric batteries and indeed whether they can even find anywhere to charge up once they're on the road. So Tesla has been improving battery technology to give the cars a range of up to 300 miles. And it's been building a network of about 100 supercharger stations across America with more to follow. They can recharge about half the battery in just 20 minutes, giving you an extra 150 miles. And the refill is absolutely free because many of the stations are powered by solar panels on the roof. Now, many of Tesla's 200 or so granted patents relate to these supercharger stations, and the hope is that allowing other car manufacturers to come in and use that technology on their vehicles, Tesla's system can become the industry standard. So you get more companies using these stations, more demand for cars, more stations, and that bigger network makes recharging more convenient for drivers so it's a sort of synergy to just try and grow the whole market
0: so is this a shot in the dark this whole idea about dropping patents like this or is there some kind of precedent have any other industries or other manufacturers done this before and seen it work
2: There's a really good recent precedent, actually. Think about how Google made its Android software free for anyone to use and adapt. That helped to ensure that the market for mobile devices continued to grow. And importantly, that its search engine was integral to those devices. So there are already signs that Tesla's move could pay off in a similar way because it's been discussing in the past week technology partnerships with BMW and Nissan. It's also in the midst of looking for a site for a new battery factory. It's planning to build a $5 billion lithium-ion battery factory by 2020. It will be the biggest in the world, and it aims to make half a million car battery packs a year, which is more than the total global production today. So getting others to adopt their technology creates a bigger market for that supply.
0: So how do they manage to pack so much charge into these batteries? What is their secret technology that they're releasing now?
2: The car's batteries charge and discharge using direct current, but the electricity in your home, that's alternating current. So when you plug an electric car in at home, it flows through an onboard rectifier that converts AC to DC so that the battery can charge. Rectifiers are quite heavy and they emit a lot of heat, and that limits how many rectifiers a car can carry. So the point is, at a supercharger station, that isn't a problem. They stack up a dozen big rectifiers with all the cooling that they need and they deliver a much more powerful flow of DC current directly to the car's batteries through a really chunky wire. It's like a huge fireman's hose, basically. And that effectively allows you much faster charging.
0: Ingenious. And what do the industry commentators, other people, what do they think about this? Do they think it's a goer? Will it fly?
2: Interestingly, when they first announced this, the share price of Tesla initially dropped slightly, But as soon as people started to realise what the implications were, it has shot up ever since. So overall, analysts are quite optimistic. They also point out that Tesla isn't being entirely altruistic. It's been exploiting this technology for quite a while. So by the time other companies integrate this with their own cars, Tesla will presumably have made further advances and it will maintain its lead on this sort of technology.
0: Mark Peplow with a way to kickstart the electric car industry.
1: And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories we've been discussing, as well as finding that our faces may have evolved to withstand being punched, go to our website at nakedscientist.com slash news.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. On to our main topic for the week now, and although it's now World Cup curtains for England, we couldn't turn our back on one of the biggest international sporting events and its millions of cheering fans.
1: But while England's fans have fallen silent now, there are still stadia full of fans singing their team's praises across Brazil. Daniel Richardson joins me now from the Department of Cognitive, Perceptual and Brain Sciences at University College London, and he's studying how people chanting together can affect their behaviour. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Now, when people chant or sing, for example, at a football game, we heard a little bit there, what changes are going on psychologically speaking?
8: Well, chanting and synchronized behavior is just one of the things that people do at football matches, um, like dressing up in the colors or painting their faces or the Swiss fans all wearing cheese on their heads. They are one of these things that people do that we think changes their social identity. And what it does is, well, we all think of ourselves as individuals. We think of ourselves unique people with values and principles, particularly in the West. But what we neglect is all the social groups that we're a member of. And when we go to a football stadium and we chant together or we're dressed the same, we're turning up the dial on that part of our own identity that's connected with this larger group. And that has all sorts of effects, both positive and negative.
1: I guess this is kind of a a tribal thing, isn't it? We're saying, I'm part of this tribe.
8: That's right, yeah. And you see this sort of behaviour, chanting and singing and moving together uh, across society. You see it in churches, in concerts, people dance and they sing and they dress the same. But what's unique about football is you've got two Two crowds of people supporting opposite teams in the same stadium. And you never go to a concert and have Metallica fans and Justin Bieber fans there at the same time. (laughs) God,
1: no. (laughs) No.
8: So it's this unique Petri dish to look at all of these social effects.
1: And so what do we know about football chanting in particular? How does it influence people that that are doing it?
8: Well, it's this type of sort of synchronized behavior. And we've studied this and it's popular knowledge now that if you look at two people, whenever they socially interact, they become more similar. So just as a result of this interview, you will have picked up a little bit of my Swindon, Californian accent. You would have copied my speech rate. If I scratch my head, you'll scratch your head. Yeah, you're not scratching your head. Scratch my hand. If we again. get on with each other, that's um, you know, this is all in body language books. But what you have in a football stadium is that sort of coordinated activity, but times by ten, eighty thousand, and what it's doing is increasing this affiliation. Mm-hmm. So if you think of the positive aspect of this, um, singing and chanting is one of the best things that you can do if you're depressed or lonely. If you join a choral singing group, it has these huge benefits, not just the social ties, but the activity that you engage in. When you sing together, your mood goes up, uh, your heartbeats synchronize within the group and has all these ways to strengthen the in-group bonds.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. I know friends in choirs and they say, I, I love it, I have to go to choirs. So it's, that, it's making people feel really good by being part of this activity.
8: That's right, and it increases all of these uh, what we call pro-social behaviours. So there have been experiments where people are asked to sing um, Oh Canada together. And they did on headphones, so sometimes they sang uh, together, sometimes they're out of sync. So everyone sang it, but could they hear other people singing along with them? And then you get people to play these little economic games where they have to share resources. And if they've just sung O Canada together, then they share out resources with each other. And they also punish people not in their group who didn't sing along with them.
1: So that's singing. Are there any other group activities that that bring people together in this kind of way in in terms of their behavior?
8: Well, there's also the moving together. So, um, again, when people talk, they move their hands together. Um, If you phone up your friend in another city and you're on the phone, you'll actually start to walk in synchrony with each other. And there's all these uh, studies looking at how this mass coordinated behavior can change these social bonds again. So one of my favorite experiments by uh, Scott Wiltermuth in, in California, he asked people to walk up and down a car park outside of his lab. And they either walked just ambling along by themselves in a small group, or they walked in time with the experimenter. So they marched up and down for 10 minutes. Then he got them back in and said, OK, that's great. We're doing a different study. Uh, this is for the medical school, and we want to make a protein paste. And we're going to make it out of these wood lice. And he held in them a box of live wood lice. He said, what I'd like you to do is you've got five minutes. Could you just take these wood lice and throw as many as you can into this thing? And he got an industrial coffee grinder in his lab. <laughs> So then he closes the door, and people are left with this box of woodlice. And the dependent variable, what they counted, was just the number of woodlice that people threw to their deaths. Actually, no woodlouse was harmed. There was a little chute, so none was was killed. It was a fake grinder. They all escaped uh, to live another day. Uh, But what he found is that if people had marched up and down with someone, they threw about 50% more woodlice into the grinder. And they're also much more likely to be the one to press the button to start killing them.
1: So in terms of the, the World Cup, we've heard a lot of chanting, a lot of singing on the telly. What happens, though, if your team isn't doing so well, like England, um, it, it, does that influence people's behaviour?
8: Well, we think all of this chanting and singing, although there's positive and negative sides, it's all doing the same thing. It's strengthening our in-group ties and also strengthening the amount that we're negative to the out-group. So we bond together with the people on our side, and we're more aggressive and negative towards the opposition. So when you get people chanting together, they may have this positive social bond with each other, but they're more likely to be abusive of the opposition. Uh, because part of what this synchronised behaviour does, if you turn up the dial on the amount that we're this group, they were this one team of supporters, you're turning down their own personal responsibility. So people feel de-individuated is the technical term. They're more likely to be aggressive and negative. There's lots of homophobic chanting at the World Cup at the moment. People yell things at players they would never say face-to-face because they feel part of this bigger group. They don't feel themselves.
1: And this doesn't sound great to me, but is there any way we could harness this in a good way, you know, if we can get people walking down the streets singing together, like in the musicals, would that, that be good? That sounds
8: lovely. That sounds great. Well, it depends what you want to do. I mean, if you think about this marching study, uh, the person who did it, Scott pointed out that um, every military in the world still does marching practice, whereas, in fact, no soldiers ever march on the battlefield. No one's done that since we had the machine gun. It's a really dumb thing to do in battle. But we still teach marching because it increases this obedience and this social cohesion. So if you want to increase social cohesion, yes, we can teach marching in school, we can have singing in school every single morning, but you have to recognise that does have a bad side. It'll increase the bonds within that group of people, but it will make them more likely to aggress and be negative to outsiders.
1: So more nice thing in choirs, fewer marching armies.
0: Yeah, that's one way to put it.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, That's Daniel Richardson from University College London.
0: So everyone listening to The Naked Scientists. Quick, march, left, right. I'm just kidding. Now, Daniel's work can be helpful in understanding how football crowds work and possibly military situations, but some scientists are actually taking data off the pitch to see how the rest of us interact with each other. Eduardo Gallo is an economist. He's got an academic interest in football. He's based at Cambridge University. Hello, Eduardo. Hi, Chris. So what can football teach us about economics then?
9: Well, economists are interested in how individuals behave and how they respond to... The incentives they are facing in um, everyday life. So football players may seem very different from us, but in reality, they are people and they're actually professional performing their everyday job who respond to the incentives um, in this job. So this is exactly the type of setting that us as economists were interested in. On top of this, there are at least three reasons why football may be a particularly interesting setting for um, economists where to study human behavior. Um, The first reason is that incentives are extremely clear in football. Uh, You want to win. And there are rules that uh, you have to follow or you can break to try to win. The second one is that the stakes are extremely high. uh, So the incentives are very strong. And uh, the third one is that we actually have a large amount of data uh, now on what players are actually doing on a football pitch. And we can use this data to study human behavior.
0: When you say we've got a lot of data from players on the football pitch, how is that data gathered? I mean, do you sit in your office at the university with a massive, great plasma tennis in and you sit there with your pen and-
9: well I watch quite a lot of football uh, but not to At collect work? Uh, data work? Uh, I'd love to have a big plasma <laughs> in my office uh, to watch uh, football games Uh, No, jokes apart. Actually, there are some companies that collect an extensive amount of data. And for example, the data that we have is from one of these companies. And it has timestamped events by the second of every event that happens on a football pitch, including the XY spatial coordinates. Uh, In other words,
0: you're tracking people around the football field so you can see where the players are going and you know where they were on the field at any one moment in time for every game. For wow. every game.
9: So for every game, we have uh, more than a thousand uh, data points and we can know exactly what's actually happening in, in those games. And this is, for example, for the English Premier League for two seasons. Wow.
0: So what can you learn from that resolution of data, from knowing how the players interacted like that?
9: One of the projects that we did was to look at the issue of discrimination. So discrimination is uh, something that uh, social scientists and economists have um, been interested in for, for a long time. It's definitely something uh, very important, both um, for its moral implication, but also its economic implications. And what we uh, did is to to look at this data and to show that referees in the English Premier League in the two seasons that we looked at discriminate against a particular group of players by awarding more yellow cards against them. And given that the data is so detailed, we can also see, for example, that this player does not behave differently in terms of, for example, aggressive behavior. Oh.
0: So when you say they're giving more yellow cards and they're discriminating against certain players, who are they discriminating against?
9: Um, players that are non-white and they are foreign and they uh, belong to the uh, minorities, minority groups in the, in the UK. So it's not on simple racial lines. It's not on simple black, uh, white.
0: What about the refs? So the refs... Or white, or are they a mixture of black and white refs? Is there any bias in that direction?
9: It would have been great to see if, if there was a significant group of, of referees that were were black and a, and a significant group that was, was white, whether there was any difference between the two. Unfortunately, the data that we look at, there was only one black referee that refereed very few games, so we cannot look at that.
0: So, are you saying that basically referees, on the basis of your data, are racist, or are you saying that, that there's something else going on which is making them discriminate against certain groups of players?
9: So this is a a great question and and, um, as economists are interested in the type of discrimination that is actually happening because, for example, this is very important for policy reasons. Now, uh, there are different types of discrimination. One type is, for example, what economists call a preference-based. So you just don't like uh, someone from a certain social group you, therefore, discriminate against them. And discrimination, for example, is called statistical discrimination, which means that there's a group of people that behave in a certain way, there is a certain tendency to behave more in that way than another group, and therefore, you discriminate against them. A typical example could be that if you believe that Spanish players dive more, then the referees may award them more yellow cards for diving, even though maybe they are not actually diving uh, more.
0: Is there any evidence yeah. for that in what you looked at?
9: Uh, no, this was just uh, an anecdote from uh, watching a lot of football. Uh, okay. The third type, for example is is what psychology called implicit discrimination, uh, right. which is something unconscious that you do because uh, you are associating a negative attribute to a certain social group and you do it without realizing it and what we show in the data is that actually the there's evidence that the discrimination that is happening is actually implicit discrimination because it's only happening when the referee is time pressured to make a decision toward a yellow card.
0: So once they're under pressure, they've got to make a decision, then this almost i don't want to say innate but some other factor is kicking in and they are discriminating in this way
9: that's right you use these mental processes associated with implicit discrimination which are intuitive mental processes only when you are time pressured and we show that referees are time pressured by players to award the yellow card because if a foul happens they only have a certain amount of time before they can award the yellow card this varies across the football pitch there is more time in the defensive or the attacking part than there is in the midfield and we actually show discrimination only happens in a midfield area. If the discrimination was, for example, preference-based, there should be no difference um, across the different parts of the pitch. Well, if it's implicit, we would expect that there's more discrimination in the middle third, which is exactly what we find.
0: What can we do about
9: that? A general message from the research is that it's very difficult to change them. Um, of course, awareness may help, but we also know that um, awareness uh, does not help in a lot of, of those domains. So, of course, awareness is, is one potential uh, solution, but it doesn't get us all the way.
0: Eduardo, thank you very much. Eduardo Gallo, he is from the University of Cambridge.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Katani. We're talking about the science behind the World Cup this week and so far we've heard from a psychologist studying chanting and an economist studying behaviour on the pitch. But football isn't just about the players, however much you might blame certain hapless individuals for England's recent disasters. A lot of it comes down to plain old physics. To find out more, Kate Lamble headed down to Coleridge Community College with the professor of spin himself, engineer
10: Hugh Hunt. If you spin a ball when it bounces, you can get the ball to spin left, right, all sorts of things and that's the kind of thing that happens in cricket when the ball bounces and it deviates off the pitch in football that happens too but bending the ball in mid-air is the best part of spin on a football I have a ball here and I can just throw it and it pretty much moves in a straight line that's fine. but i put a bit of spin on it did you see? yeah, there we go, everyone's got to have a go I'm going to put some spin on it the more spin you put on it you see that curved around? (laughs) You weren't expecting that to come to you because it curved.
9: Well, we're
10: just passing the ball, but as we're doing it, we're spinning it, so it'll go all in different directions, and so we don't know where it's going to end up. Jack, I'm going to spin this ball to you, and you don't quite know whether it's going to go to the left or to the right, and you judge that well, but imagine if it's coming at you much faster, and it spins, and you're the goalie, and you jump in the wrong direction. Then you've gone and let a penalty through.
5: If you twist a ball, why does that make it move in the air to the left or to the right?
10: When an airplane goes through the air, it generates lift because the air is deflected downwards. The wing pushes air downwards. If you've got a spinning ball, it pushes air around it as well. The more it spins, the more the air is pushed around. Now, Isaac Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. If you push on the air, the air's got to push on you.
5: So as the spinning ball drags more air around to one side of it the air pushes back on the ball and forces it to change course.
10: I've got a couple of paper cups, the, the sort of cups that you would normally throw in the bin after you've used them. I've joined the cups together in the middle so it looks like an hourglass, and I've got a rubber band which I've cut in half, and I'm going to wrap the, the rubber band around the cups. If I pull the rubber band back... <laughs> that's what you that's the reaction.
5: Paper. What happened?
10: It's it spun around
5: the in the air and shot forward. But it did it quite slowly,
6: so it kind of... It wasn't like he threw it, just, like, flew through the air.
10: If I did that same thing without any spin, it falls quite quickly. But as soon as I put a bit of spin on it, backspin in this case, it hovers up. Now, what would happen if I put some top spin on it? Well, let's try it. And you see it curve down really, really quickly.
5: Looking at that, do any of you guys see how that would work in football? If you kick the football and you gave it downspin, then people
6: might think you were kicking it quite far, but actually you were kicking it quite close. So, like, you could be k- kicking it to a team member that was closer and all the players would run in the other direction.
10: Precisely right. Now, supposing you guys stand in a little line here, OK? We're
5: forming a defensive free-kick free wall here. defensive wall
10: here, OK? Now, if I threw it over the top of you, it's not going to get behind the line. If I put some top spin on, then I can get the ball to... You see how it went down very quickly? The spin made it curve downwards, so the ball goes over you and you think, oh, that's fine, it's not going to go into the goal. But it curves down and goes into the goal. Yeah, it does help in, like, situations, like if you're, like, on a one-on-one to the goalie, don't know where you're, like, going. Unfortunately, the goalie's pretty good at looking at what you're doing. The goalie thinks, ah, right, now he's coming on this side, I know where it's going to go. And you want to be unpredictable. You have to disguise what you're doing with your foot. The other thing you can do is actually you can kick the ball dead straight with no spin. And then you have this really weird thing that happens, which is called knuckling. Knuckling is a baseball term. If you have a ball in your hand like this with your knuckles, it's the knuckle ball, Like You can see your knuckles. And you throw it with no spin. What happens then is it weaves around rather randomly and it's unpredictable. And that's what you want when you're kicking a penalty. Actually, it's best not to put any spin on it at all. If it's you against the goalie, it might go left, it might go right, it might go left and then right.
5: So spin is most useful in things like free kicks, when you want to get it over the wall, direct it towards where you want to go, use the spin to make it being unpredictable, but you know what it's going to do, and knuckling, kicking it straight on, penalties, make it as random as possible so even you don't know where it's going to end up.
10: There's a critical speed for knuckling, which means that if the ball is going at just that right speed, it's going to have maximum amount of deviation. This year... The new World Cup ball, it's a slower speed than it was in the previous World Cup, which means that you might find a few of these penalties are kicked slower than they were in previous World Cups, so that knuckling has its maximum effect.
5: So, Jack, you mentioned that you were using spin on penalties when you're one-on-one in a goalie. Does that change your
10: opinion on what you're going to do? Sort of in penalties, yeah, because if you get, like, a strong shot, obviously you'd go straight. But, say, if you're not in a penalty, you'd use the spin because you'd have more, like the goalie and they wouldn't know where to go.
0: Hugh Hunt was with Kate Lamble and the pupils of Coleridge Community College.
1: Now the World Cup is a huge celebration, but it turns out the beautiful game does have a darker side. New data's been published suggesting that reported incidences of domestic violence increase after an England football match. In the time around England's recent World Cup match against Italy, Cambridgeshire Constabulary reported 21 cases of domestic violence in comparison to 12 cases in the same time period the previous week. Dr. Stuart Kirby has been looking at the correlation between the FIFA World Cup and domestic abuse in Lancashire and he joins us now Hi Stuart. Hello there. Obviously the figure we just gave for Cambridgeshire is is anecdotal, it's just one situation from the police, but uh, tell me about your study, what time period and how much data were you gathering for it?
11: We went to Lancashire which has got a population of about one and a half million, went to the police there and uh, took out all the data and we looked at it on a yearly uh, monthly and daily basis, especially over the World Cup Now, we looked at the data over three World Cups, so 2002, 2006, 2010, and we found two things. First of all, we found that there was a matchday trend. So that meant that when England played, even if they won or actually drew the game, there was an increase in domestic abuse of about 26%. But unfortunately, when they lost, it went up even further, and there was an increase of about 38%. The other trend that we found was that there was a tournament trend. So uh, 2002, uh, when it went into 2006, there was an increase and then a further increase in 2010. So unfortunately, we're seeing an increasing trend over the tournaments as well.
1: This sounds very alarming. Why do you think we've seen this increase uh, every four years?
11: Well, there are lots of studies on domestic abuse, and they've come up with many uh, reasons why. So, many have come up with individual factors. So, the individuals involved, its it's been due to their personality, or the way they've responded to something. But this study really puts forward uh, more of an environmental focus. Now... We also know from previous studies that domestic abuse is more likely to increase at weekends when people spend more time together. It's more likely to increase on warm days, on major holidays. We see a big association with alcohol. So some studies will say that in 37% of cases, domestic abuse is uh, correlated with alcohol. And there's even been an American study which said that people argue most over what they will watch on the television when sport is, is on. So the biggest arguments around sport. So what we think is happening is all these risk factors are coming together in a very uh, intense and vo- volatile period.
1: Is this just something that's restricted to uh, Lancashire? Are the, uh, the people of Lancashire particularly liable to have a punch-up after a footy game? Or do you think that this trend is something that's happening across the UK?
11: Well, we know that the trend is happening nationally because there was another study done just on the last World Cup and basically that research just asked for data on the England games in the last World Cup. So we saw a rise across the country. I think another question is, is it actually rising or is people just coming forward with the information? Uh, We found arguments both sides and it just needs more research, which is what we're doing during this uh, current World Cup.
1: Broadly, you know, we've moved away from the days of football hooliganism that were really bad, and particularly in things like the, in the 80s, lots of violence outside games and between fans. Is this maybe some, uh, an outlet for violence that we're not seeing and are not maybe so aware of? Has it moved?
11: Well, I, th- I think that's a really interesting point, actually. And one of the things that I would say about that is what happened was that in the 60s and 70s, when it clearly became a national problem... The police, the football clubs, and everybody came together and they put very strong preventative measures in place think what we've got here is this is just surfacing as an issue and the more that's known about it more and more preventative methods will come in into place.
1: So what do you think is the key to to tackling this problem? Is it just gathering more data about it? Is it it trying to make the idea that violence should be kicked out of football and kicked out in a domestic setting as well?
11: Well there's lots of research just on general offender behaviour and one of the uh, the benefits of this other research is that you can say, well, what's worked with with other crimes? What's worked with violence generally? And basically to increase the efforts of the offence taking place, to reduce the rewards of it taking place. So uh, your, your caller earlier was talking about the economics of it. I think when we start to bring some of these factors together, uh, we can do something about it. But I think the first thing to do is to... First of all, highlight the problem and then look at the extent of the problem. And one of the things that we're doing this year in terms of our research is looking specifically at the trigger points. So what is it exactly? Is it at the end of the game when when the team are clearly going to lose? Is it when one player doesn't particularly perform? Is it when some, when there's an argument between partners who are watching the game? What exactly are the trigger points? And I think once we know those, we can put the interventions in which are most likely to work.
1: And I certainly hope that does come to fruition. Thank you very much. That's Dr Stuart Kirby from Lancaster University.
11: And closing this
0: week's Naked Scientist programme for you, Greta Jackson has had her nose in a book to try and solve this question.
2: Why do people sneeze differently? Is there any reason I can't change my sneeze to a quiet one? Are there any connections between personality and your type of sneeze?
5: But what exactly is a sneeze? A sneeze is a
6: sudden expulsion of air from your lungs out through your nose and mouth powered by vigorous muscle contractions in your face, throat and chest, and usually in response to an irritation inside your nose. This is so, whatever is causing this irritation can be expelled from your nasal passages. Sneezes can also be caused by bright lights, which is called photic sneezing, and affects around one in five of us. The reasons people have different sneezes is mainly down to personal anatomy. The size of your lungs and windpipe have an impact, as well as the strength of the muscles around your chest and throat. It may also be a cultural thing. People in Britain tend to say achoo when they sneeze, while in Japan people tend to say hakashun, and deaf people tend not to insert any word into a sneeze at all. It might be possible to change how you sound with practice, but the volume of your sneeze can be changed by breathing out instead of in before you sneeze, or by clenching your teeth. However, never block your nose to stop a sneeze, as the internal pressure may rupture your eardrums or
5: even trigger the involuntary release of urine. Not an answer to be sniffed at. But what does your sneeze say about you? Dr Alan Hirsch, sneeze and taste researcher, or you could say, sneezologist.
10: What we have been studying is how sneezing can indicate one's personality type. We've done tests on over 18,000 people and correlated different personality traits and behaviors. What we found is if you have a loud projectile-like sneeze, it indicates that you tend to be more self-assured, aggressive individual, and more of a natural leader who won't take no for an answer, whereas those who have sneezes that are more muffled tend to be more shy, introverted, less self-assured.
5: Well, now we all know's the answer. On to next week's question from Emma and Greg Robinson. Hi, Naked Scientists.
1: We're looking at the waves breaking on Waiheke Beach in Hawaii at night. Wondering why the breaking waves are white. Where does the white come from?
5: What do you think?
0: I think you're just trying to make us jealous over there in Hawaii. If you can help, do write to me, chris at com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can find us on our Facebook page. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Dr Cat, and thank you also to our contributors Daniel Richardson, Eduardo Gallo and Stuart Kirby. Production was by Kate Lamble. Join us next week for an edition of The Naked Scientist from the Cambridge Science Centre where we'll be looking at extreme engineering. That's levitation... Earthquakes, armoured cars and the Spice Project, an ambitious attempt to put a big balloon into the high atmosphere where it will combat climate change by discharging sulphate particles. Find out how that works next time. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the SDFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.